Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll and powered today by Geico. We've got another special episode for you today. Paranormal expert Jeff Belanger returns to Talk is Jericho, and he's got a completely different kind of story to share with us. Jeff climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Think about that. And he wrote a book about his adventure. It's titled The Call of Kilimanjaro, Finding Hope Above the Clouds. And Jeff details his journey up and down the mountain, what inspired him to undertake the climb, how he trained for it, and the paranormal experiences associated with Kilimanjaro. It's an incredible story. So let's pack up our bags and climb Mount Kilimanjaro with Jeff Belanger together right now on Talk is Jericho. Thanks to Geico. One of my first guests uh, who was an expert on the paranormal is Jeff Belanger. And we've worked together on, uh, on, on another show, which I forgot about, about the Bridgewater Triangle. I think we did a podcast about that too, didn't we? We did. We did all kinds of stuff, all kinds of weirdness. So it's good to see you again, Chris. It's, it's awesome to talk to you and see you. And, and Dave Schrader from Beyond the Darkness always kind of says, hey, you should talk to this person, that person. And he goes, you should talk to this guy, Jeff, about his book about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm like, well, what's he like as a guest? He's like, ah, you know, you know him. I'm like, wait, I know Jeff. Yeah. What? I you know. went and climbed Kilimanjaro since the last time I saw you uh, at the Bridgewater Triangle or whatever it is and wrote a whole book about it. So, I mean, I guess right off the bat, I mean, wow, what an experience that must have been uh, to climb possibly the biggest mountain in the world or one of them. Yeah, one of the it's one of the seven summits. One, it's the tallest in Africa, nineteen thousand three hundred and forty-one feet. But who's counting, right? Who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. No, I mean, I thought about that mountain since childhood, since Toto's song "Africa," right? It mentions seriously Kilimanjaro. Yeah, and then um, I went. Wow. And I, I started hiking around college and right after college, and I loved mountains. Uh, I live in New England, so doing the White Mountains of New Hampshire and things like that. It's just great to get outdoors. That place has just been on my bucket list for years and years. And so it was a, a great opportunity came up to finally do it. Well, it's funny because you mentioned Kilimanjaro being part of uh, uh, the song Africa. And I read that in your press release. And then, of course, like a moron, I'm like, okay, so Jeff remembers Kilimanjaro from, from Africa by Toto. Where is Kilimanjaro located? And then I found out, oh, it's in Africa. You dummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, that, but that, that's the line. I'm just looking up right now. Uh, the wild dogs cry out at night as they grow restless, longing for some solitary company. I know I must do what's right. As sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. Not exactly a squeeze me, please me type of lyrics from a rock band. <laughs> no, I don't think Fozzie. Does Fozzie cover that one yet or no? We're actually writing a, 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 an epic called Kilimanjaro. It's 14 minutes long. Excellent. Uh, yeah, let me great. know. I just I want to hold the lighter in the video. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so, all so, so you've always been obsessed with, with Kilimanjaro since you were a kid. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you, so you've climbed mountains prior to this? Yeah. So, I mean, in New, in New England, our tallest mountain is like 6,400 feet. So it's nothing compared to the big mountains like the Himalayas and stuff like that. But it's, uh, I don't know, it's nice, especially in this digital world to sometimes get away. But you know, as you get older, I don't know what your, uh, I, I do sort of know what your 40s are like, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, like you, you get into a rut, even, even if your job is wicked cool. Like I know yours is, right. mine is, mine is too. Like it's still, it's a rut of your own design, but you're like, okay, you know, like work, do my thing, family, like repeat. And, uh, and I got to do something to shake things up. 
that shakeup happened back in 2013 when my brother-in-law got sick with cancer. And that was just such a wake-up call. He was just a couple of years older than me. And suddenly this guy went from seemingly okay to strange stomach issues. And then he went to the doctor and they run tests and more tests. And his doctor calls him one day and says, Chris, his name was Chris too, uh, get down here right now. Don't wait for your work day to end. Don't make an appointment. Just get down here right now. And he knows that's not good. Um, And when he gets there, he finds out just how bad it is. They tell him you have stage four cancer, fully metastasized tumors all over. You have 18 to 24 months to live. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and my nephew's three years old at the time, and I'm just looking at that and going, holy, I mean, you know, if for the next like year plus, uh, he went into a pretty big depression. Uh, you know, I can't say how I would be facing the same sentence, but he and I got a lot closer. I mean, we were always, you know, it was fun at family events or whatever we talk, but um, he's like, I know you're a paranormal guy and I'm going through something really weird. And I said, yeah, I mean, you know, death is is usually pretty quick for most of us. You don't see it coming and it's over. But he really got to know it. He got intimate. And so he and I talked a lot. And my sister really sort of checked out of the whole thing. You know, she was just kind of in denial. She's looking at her young son. You know, he's not going to have a father. And so Chris and I talked a lot and just got closer about uh, because he was able to talk about that subject with me and, and no one else. And I learned so much from him, just like this insight he had into watching this this black fog come at him for two years, right? Two years is a long time and not a long time. It's mm-hmm. si- simultaneously, you know? Um, and so near the end, man, we were talking a lot and he was having these out-of-body experiences. He was talking about how uh, the first time it happened, he's in the hospital and he wakes up 20 feet over his body looking down at it. I said, what happened? He said, I'm scared of heights. I was petrified and it was mm-hmm. over. I was right back in my body. But then it was happening every day. And, uh, and by the time he got down to his final days, I went to Connecticut where he lives to, to see him. And, and it's strange, you know, when you, when you go for a drive to a destination like that, or, you know, this isn't a visit, right? This is, this is that big goodbye. And we talked, we talked for like three hours and it was one of the most enlightening conversations I've ever had in my life. Um, I walked into his bedroom and he, he's been on hospice care. He had a rented hospital bed in his room, oxygen machine. And his skin was absolutely yellow from jaundice. I know jaundice, right? His organs are failing, but the sunlight coming through the window is like hitting his body and he just looked golden. He was glowing like a golden Buddha. And he just was so at peace finally with this thing he was going through. And he told me he was having out-of-body experiences three, four, five times a day. And now he's seeing things. I said, what do you mean seeing things? And he said, well, the first time I saw my cat from childhood. And he said, and I didn't even like that cat. <laughs> and I said, oh. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, said, then I saw my grandma and I was close with my grandma. I said, what do you think all this means? And he said, uh, I think there's something inside this broken machine that's getting ready to bust out and stay out for good. And uh, he slipped away six days later. So that gave you some sort of inspiration and, and clarity and, and a sense of mortality or yeah, not clarity, but yeah, yeah fogginess if, at, at, at least. But yeah. I got you the opposite. Yeah. yeah. yeah the opposite of clarity, but it, it was a wake up call that man, life is short. You know, I'm in my forties. I think I've, I'm in the middle of my life. You hope, you hope mm-hmm. you're in the middle, but maybe you're not. And so it was seven months later, I was doing this paranormal event and someone said, Hey, for the leukemia lymphoma society, we got this big fundraiser, Jeff. And I was like, oh, I'll help if I can. And they said, we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I was like, 
raise money for cancer research. Just lost my brother-in-law. Life is short. I got to do this. I have to Toto. do this. Toto. I took Swahili in college two semesters. What? Two semesters of Swahili in college. I know. Why did you take two because, semesters of Swahili? Because my Canadian friend, my last name, Belanger, is Belanger en Francais. And when you <laughs> take French, uh, the teacher assumes you're fluent. I'm like, I've lived in America <laughs> so long. I've lived here so long. My name's Belanger now. It wasn't even like my great grandparents changed it, you know? And, uh, and so I failed. I failed French one. And then I took. Uh, I took Spanish and it was too close. I was confused. It's, I was like, I need a language that's unlike any other. The friend was like, take Swahili. The professor's amazing. I'm like, where do they even speak that? Like Eastern Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Ghana, that whole area. I'm like, cool, I'm in. And the teacher was amazing. And so, uh, and my mom even said, she's like, when the hell are you ever going to use Swahili? Boom, 20 years later. Hey, it, mom. All, it was all meant to be. It just came together in this cosmic force of uh, amazing. Wow. Is it, and that's the primary language in, in Africa, in the area of Africa that you're going to? Yeah, in Tanzania. I spent all my time in Tanzania. Uh, once you're on Kilimanjaro, you can look right over the edge and see into Kenya. Uh, if you're picturing Africa, the area that bulges out on the eastern side just below the equator, Kilimanjaro straddle, straddles the border between uh, Kenya and Tanzania. And it's That's a volcano. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, and it's just one of those things. Like, I don't typically get starstruck with people. But the first time I saw this mountain in person, man, I was giddy as the day is long. It's like, it's like you're in a bar and Mark Hamill from Star Wars just walked <laughs> in. And you're like, ah! oh, my God, it's him. Right? I'm just like, here's Kilimanjaro, right. you know? Right. It's amazing, yeah. So... How exactly does that work then? You're going to go do this for charity. Do you have to train or, or is there some kind of protocols you have to go through and kind of fill us in on that? Yeah. So the training was was very much cardio. This is not a technical climb. You don't need ropes and, and hammer and spikes into walls and things like that. If you can hump your butt up a mountain, you can get there. Um, so it's a, it's a slow kind of uh, incline? Six days to the top, two days down, and uh, the total trip is 42 miles of walking. Why so, is it only two days down? Because uh, it's one way. There's like five different routes to get to the top, and then there's one way down for everybody. So you, oh. you, everyone gets picked up in the same spot. Oh, I see. And if there's an emergency, they can they can get you down quickly um, through this one route. So they don't want gotcha. people going against the grain. But yeah, and, and you got to pack for like all four seasons. You know, at the bottom, you're right near the equator. It's a rainforest. It's tropical. Oh, it's summer. Wow. And you get up above 10,000 feet and it feels like, you know, fall in, in Canada or New England. And then when you get to the top, there's glaciers up there. It's an Arctic tundra. So all, you know, and I'm like four seasons in, in six days. Shoot, we do that in one day in New England. <laughs> we can handle that. <laughs> so tell us and Geico about the journey. Uh, is a guide meeting you? A guide is picking you up? How does it work? Yeah, so so the training was like six months. We were we were put together with a team of people that were all doing this. None wow, of us knew each six other. Six months. Six months of uh, lots of cardio, right? So this is this is. I mean, you got to be able to go seven eight miles a day uh, at higher altitudes. Altitude you can't train for unless you can get to altitude, but the rest of it you can. And so, it, um, and it's funny. I've never had such a fitness goal like this, you know, like, like I, I, I exercise regularly. I'd go to the gym, I run, but you know, there's days where I'm like, ah, eh, I'll just do two miles today or, eh, you know, I'll phone this one in. But once that was on the horizon, 
there was no cutting anything short. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my, my I was eating better because every time you look at that big double cheeseburger, you're like, uh, is that going to help? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know, you know. And so I found everything was just getting better. So we get over there. Uh, we have a we have guides. It's going to take uh, literally 48 people, locals, that are going to be helping us with tents and carrying food and water. Like everything's got to go with you. So it's almost like this whole village is moving up the mountain with us. And there was 12 of us from America that were, that were coming to do this. And it was just this incredible thing to just get just emerged in Swahili and Africa, be like the only white people for miles and miles around and see what that feels like. Uh, see poverty like I haven't seen before when we were in the town of Moshi right outside of uh, the mountain. I mean, man, their middle class would be just destitute poor over here, you know, living in a metal shack with no windows like that's right. middle class. And you really I've never felt like a rich white guy before that. You know, I've, I've traveled around the world, but I've never felt like such a rich white guy before that moment. You know, so I would assume that's probably kind of an industry for those people over there. They probably take six trips a year or whatever, taking Americans and foreigners up the up the mountain. Yeah, no, it, it's everything feeds off that mountain. There's safaris that people go on like that. Uh, the beer is Kilimanjaro beer. The tea is Kilimanjaro tea. Like everything sort of feeds off this mountain. And and when we started on the trail, we're in this rainforest and I remember back home thinking like, I'm going to take a picture of that first step. I'm going to take video of that monumental, like first thing. We're like 50 yards up the trail before it even occurred to me that we've begun. And oh, I, wow. Yeah. You just, I was like, I realized I was so scattered, you know, how scattered my brain was. I felt guilty. This is expensive. This is a, a vacation. My family and I could have taken with this money, but it's just right. me. And, and, uh, just, you know, am I cut out for this, this whole thing? I'm, I'm missing work, email, all that. And we're walking just this incredibly slow pace through this rainforest. And then we like see monkeys, you know, there's monkeys in the trees and I've seen monkeys before, but yeah, but not like that. Yeah. Yeah. If they want to jump on your face and rip it off, they can, they can do that. There's no (laughs) stopping them. Uh, And so I was just like, Whoa, I am in Africa now. And, uh, and, and, you know, we get to our first camp and it's, I'm, I'm, I would rather cut off a finger than camp. (laughs) <laughs> like, like I'll get dirty with you all day, but, but I want like a hot shower and a yeah, big, yeah, right. big feather bed at the end of the day. And so there's no other way, you know, and, and I've got this camping gear and like, this is as foreign to me as, as like Africa, you know? And I'm like, what do I self-inflating mattress pad? Like I'm 195 <laughs> pounds. Like, how am I going to keep this off a of dirt ground? And, and, and guess what? It doesn't. It, I don't even know what it does, but it does not keep you off the dirt ground, man. And then you're, you're asking, you're like, am I this soft? Am I this <laughs> yeah. soft, right? Like, ah, come on. So our friends at Geico want to know, uh, how are you raising money for charity and doing this? Well, I, I reached out to my buddy, Chris Jericho, for one and said, can you retweet this? And he did. Uh, so that was nice. Of him. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah he did. Thank you. Yeah. So it was um, just social media. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it was just put putting the word out there. People donated directly to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and we had to raise a thousand bucks minimum. And I think I raised north of seventeen thousand, which great. was yeah, it yeah. was awesome. People were so generous, and I'll tell you too, I printed out a list of every donor and how motivating it is when you are doing something athletic like that. Every night in my tent, I would look. I had over three hundred donors. Some people donated five bucks. Some people donated hundreds, and I looked at every name, and I was just like. I don't want to let anyone down. <laughs> and I got the idea because I, I had heard about a marathon runner, big guy who's you'd look at him and you wouldn't think marathon. And he, he would write 26 names on his arm uh, for every mile. 
And so if he was really struggling with like mile seven, he'd oh. look down at look down at number seven and be like, I don't want to let my friend so-and-so down or my family member so-and-so. And I was thinking about like, how do you motivate yourself when you're trying to do something that, you know, you haven't done before, especially something this big. Mm. And, and that was one of the ways I did it. So when you meet the, the other 12 people, they're all from just different parts of the, of the country. And they're all, you guys are meeting for the first time on this base, base of the mountain. Yeah. Five of us uh, met in New England and trained together. The okay. other, yeah. But the rest, uh, six were from California. One was from New Jersey. So we all just met in Tanzania and we were just going to be cohabitating for eight days. But it was, uh, it was amazing, man. Once you, once you get above the tree line and it's so quiet, there's no pollution. There's no light pollution. There's no sound. There's no trains or cars or anything you can even hear. Jets don't fly overhead. There's too much turbulence over the mountain. It's so quiet. There's no bugs. There's no animals once you get to a certain height. And I've never, I, I've never in my life can recall just like that this this peacefulness that comes over like you get broken down to something so simple right you eat you sleep you walk you get to the next camp bodily functions become a really big part of your day mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and you're yeah. just like it's just life got so simple there's no cell phone anymore and it's okay you know it, it, everything will just the world will go on and it'll just have to wait for me till we get off this thing and that was something that i, I kind of didn't see coming was was finding some inner quiet for the first time and i don't even remember how long well, cause you, you're, you have a daughter and, and, and you have a wife, right? Yep. So was that kind of weird being completely, cause in, in your book, you mentioned just being completely disconnected from the world, you know? So like you mentioned right there, social media, checking out, was that ever an issue where like, you can't talk to your family at all? For the first two days, yeah, I, I struggled with it. Like, and that was, I just kept thinking, oh, are they okay? If they, if there's an emergency, there's no, nothing you can do. Nothing. This is it until I get off this mountain and nothing I can do if there's an emergency. The good news is I told my family back home, silence equals good. So if, if, if your phone <laughs> isn't ringing, everything's fine, right? Right, right, right. Uh, from my end, you know, from your end, please just be okay. You know, take care yeah, of everything. Exactly, right, right, exactly. And that's hard. You know, I know you travel a lot and sometimes yeah. you're on the other side of the planet. And it's not like if something really goes down, it could take you a day or more to get home. And that's going as fast as possible, you know? And that's just when you're within your own country. Right. Yeah. Never right. Being halfway across the world. Right. Yeah. So it's that was a real stressor for me because I've I mean I've traveled for work plenty, but there was always like, well, if I had to, I'd go to the airport right now. I'd get on the next flight. I'd be home in hours. You know, whatever. I would figure it out. But this is this was a whole other deal. But after a couple of days, I, I just started to feel like, all right, you know what? I'm where I need to be right now. This I I don't know. The mountain I think is like the opposite of a rut. You know, when your life feels like a rut, <laughs> a mountain yeah. that's down and a mountain is up. <laughs> right. And uh, just kind of getting quiet and and realizing, you know, when you're up that high, you'd see a couple of things like these pretty little flowers and things like that. And I was looking at it. I'm like, man, that takes grit to, to survive up here for anything, for anything to be here. And then I was like, wait a minute. I have grit. I'm, I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm making it. And uh, that grit, you know, you, you know, you have that grit when you're in your 20s and you're trying to make your rent and sleeping on your friend's couch and your car's busted. Right. You, you've got to like have grit to get to the next day. But once your life gets a little comfortable, you forget that it's even in you. And it was sort of that was a great rediscovery, too, was just to be like, all right. All right. I still got it. I may not play in the NFL, but uh, I can I can handle this mountain. and I'm doing it. You know, I'm handling it. I think one of the most interesting things about it is that you are, like you mentioned, you're just walking and starting off in the forest and kind of moving up where it's not like, like 
I saw a movie, a documentary, I'm sure you saw it, where the guy was actually climbing up the side of the mountain. You know what I mean? Free solo. Free solo. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you are just basically walking and walking and walking. So what's the next level? You said once you get past the tree line, it's very calm. What comes after that? So once once you're around 10,000 feet, that's not so bad. I mean, if, if you're not sprinting, you're breathing okay. Once you get to like 12, 13, 14,000 feet, breathing becomes something you're highly aware of. Yeah. If you're standing perfectly still, it's not so bad. But if you got to carry your pack and, and go uphill, I mean, something at sea level that's no big deal is suddenly a very big deal. And you got to go way slower than feels natural. Uh, the analogy I like to use is, you know, those little stirring straws you get at the diner for your coffee. Yeah. You, just put that in your mouth and breathe through that. Now go for a jog. And just try to get enough air through that teeny little straw. Right. And, that, and that's what it's like. You know, you're just like, there's not enough air coming in. Uh, but once we get up higher and higher, once we get to like the, the base camp, two people of the 12 had to turn back. They couldn't handle the altitude. Oh, really? Yeah, that was uh, that was something. We, we see plaques where people have died, where this marking, you know, where, where people have passed away, uh, in some cases from the altitude, in one case from a lightning strike. And you're, I'm like, lightning? Oh, man. Like, that's that hadn't even occurred to me, you know, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I got all this metal, I got batteries and cameras and metal poles. And, I, uh, you know, what do you do? We're in the clouds, man. You're, you're walking along and it's clear. And then a cloud goes right through you because you're at 12,000, 13,000 feet. And I'm like, if that thing is gray and electric, what do you even do? And our guide said, you drop your pack and you hide behind a rock. I'm like, oh, good. Well, you know, now I have a plan. <laughs> right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but uh, thankfully we didn't need, but the night of the summit, that was, that's where like, it just went from like a walk in a park to really real. And we have to leave at midnight to get to the summit. Uh, it's only three miles up, but it's, it's, it's going to take eight hours to, to get up there for sunrise. And then we got to get back down. And when I woke up that night out of my tent and I had layers on and I'm used to the cold, man, I was the coldest I've ever been in my life. And we start going and the difference between 15 and 16,000 feet is exponential. Like eight to 9,000 feet, man, not so much. But once you get 15 to 16, 16 to 17, like you're very aware that all the oxygen molecules are below you now. Like there's just, you're fighting for them at this point. And it's like 3 a.m. and it's pitch dark. We have on headlamps. I can just see like this little glowing tan world around my feet. And you don't even know how you could take the next step. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, how do I get this close and not and turn back. Like, how do I go back and tell my family I made it to like 18,000 feet. And then you see another plaque where someone died and you go, Oh geez, but I don't want to die up here either. Mm -hmm. But it was like four thirty-five in the morning. And I turn around and to the East, like there's just this little sliver of light way out on the horizon. And I realize the sun's coming up and I'm like, all right, just get to the sunrise. And you just push ahead and you follow your guide's feet in front of you. And it's just so slow, but any faster and you just can't breathe. And finally, at 6.30 in the morning, we get just to the rim of the volcano and I turn around and the sun just broke through the clouds. And I remember feeling so many things all at once. So number one, the Maasai and the Chaga people who live around the mountain have a word for the top and it's, it's the house of God. It's completely a foreign land to them and only those that God deems worthy are allowed up. And in that moment, that sunrise hits you, this sunrise, this thing that's happened every day for billions of years, like it hit me. And I felt the presence of this thing, this creator, God, spirit, whatever you want to call it. And I felt my brother-in-law, Chris, standing next to me. And I, I laughed. I cried. Like every emotion poured out. I felt judged and I felt 
that I was deemed worthy. And it was like the defining moment of my forties, right? Because in this moment I was like, you know what? The summit's still another 500 vertical feet, another half mile away. It's a done deal. Like mm-hmm. this is happening now. Like now it's just finish it. And, and that was, it was, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the sunrise and I'll never forget that, that feeling right there. That was, that was even better than the summit. The summit was just like getting the trophy after the game, you know? Right. But that was the moment. Let's talk about what you carried up the mountain. And we'll do that after I say thank you to the sponsor who's making this episode possible. Talking about Geico, do you own or rent your home? I'm sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, it's easy. And that's bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Just go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. All right, Jeff, here's a question, another one from our friends at Geico. What did you carry up the mountain and what was in your backpack for this journey? That was kind of a cool thing, too. To re- and that took me days to realize I had what I needed. You know, Mm. I had water, I had some snacks, I had a rain shell, I had a couple more layers. I had pictures of my family. I had pictures of my brother-in-law, Chris, and my nephew. Right. A list of my donors. And that was about it. You know, you you carry only what you need. My cameras, I was taking a lot of pictures, you know, and I've been such a goal-oriented guy for so long. You know, I was just like, get to the top, get to the top, get to the top, that you, you miss so much along the way. And trying to be a better photographer made me sort of stop and appreciate these moments, you know, like the, the light would change, the clouds would move and you'd go, Oh, look at that. You know, and you just want to capture every, every moment of it. But there was also a big realization when we did get to that summit side, when you finally touch it, 19,341 feet, you touch it and you go, dear God, this is the halfway point. (laughs) 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 So tired. Can't breathe. And you go, Oh no, this is halfway. We got to get down. I got to get home. Like this is, this is where the journey home starts. Right. 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 You know, it's interesting because you would go through so many different emotions. Cause not just, let me try and, and phrase this properly, not just because of what you're going through physically, but also mentally as well. That to me seems it's one of the few things where climate is changing, physical feeling. You mentioned the temperature change, but also slowly unlocking from what you're used to thinking mentally into now it's just one step in front of the other rather than worrying about this entire other world that you kind of left behind. It was enlightening. And I feel like at the top, uh, the analogy I use is like, it's like a picture was taken, but it's a black and white line drawing. And it would take literally weeks, maybe even months for that drawing to fill in with colors and sharpness. Uh, Something happened up there. And I feel like I came home a better man. Number one, a guy who knows I can climb Mount Kilimanjaro, that I can still do some big stuff, physical stuff in my midlife here. Um, And, you know, you, you get chewed out by your boss or something and you're just like, yeah, okay. I could still climb out Kilimanjaro. You know, like, yeah. I, I get to keep that one, right? Like that's a thing I get to keep. And 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 just getting away from it all and getting that high up, like you gain I gained so much perspective on myself, right? Like that inner kid felt like he was still in there somewhere. Haven't heard from him in years, but like somewhere in there I, I felt like he woke up a little bit and he's like, Hey, climb that rock just because it looks like fun, you know? And mm. And let's uh, let's just do what humans do. And it was it was just so incredible to get back to to something like that. And and I'm the kind of guy to has to process it. Like I started writing it down when I got home. I mean, I wrote for a year, just 
draft after draft, just processing it through words, uh, what it really meant to me. And, and, you know, what I love about the mountain is like, it's the ultimate metaphor. You know, anything can be a mountain, getting over a breakup, getting a new job, uh, you know, dealing with, with like cancer in your life or someone you care about, whatever, like those are all mountains that we have to climb. But like, this was a mountain that I chose to climb that I put in my way on purpose. And I got to remind myself to, that we do have to put mountains in our way now and then just to show ourselves, we still have that grit. Another question from our Geico pals, as you start getting further and further up the mountain, what's it like for your oxygen levels and breathing and all that sort of thing? So they test us every day, twice a day. Uh, they're testing oxygen levels, your vitals, all that stuff. Um, you just don't know how you can handle altitude till you get there. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't train for it. I mean, they make these masks that give you a little less air, but it's just not the same. I mean, at some point I felt uh, drunk and not the fun drunk. I mean, when you're 17, 18,000 feet, I, I dropped a, a glove at my, just right at my feet and I bent over to pick it up and I stood up and I just went, oh man, like that, that took everything out of me. Just that simple thing. Uh, at some point I was trying to zip up my jacket after stopping to, to pee and like, I couldn't get my zipper together and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with it. I just didn't have the coordination to just get these two things together and zip it up. And one of our guides had to come over and I felt like a child. He was just like zip, you know, and <laughs> It, it was it was one of those things where you, you you're just you you feel just out of your body, and by the time we get up to those those higher altitudes, it's like you're you're a wet towel that's just been totally wrung out. You know, like everything's right, right, been right. squeezed out of you. And I know you're an athlete; you know how that feels. Like, I mean, it's good. It's good for the soul, right? To get yeah, that, exactly to get that. It's good for your body, but it's good for your soul to get that squeezed out where you're like, it is all out of me right now. (laughs) And you know that like, I'm at a point in my life where like, you know, it occurred to me, like, I'm not going to play professional sports, (laughs) you know, no, no, (laughs) no one enters like baseball or the NFL at this age. Like, but, but what can I still do? And like, this was something I could do. And, and it was like really, I don't know, empowering, you know, to be like, I still got it. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I don't have a foot in the grave yet. And, um, and that, that's, that's one of the things I, I definitely got to bring home. There's a great story in your book where you're feeling happy and you start singing Spice Girls <laughs> and then pay the price where you can't breathe for the next three hours or whatever. It, <laughs> <laughs> it was out of nowhere. We're like myself and one of the girls from California, we just broke into like wannabe, you know, like if you want to be, I'm just being a goof and just <gasps> go ahead. <laughs> you're like, you know, 20 seconds of that. And you're like, go without us. Just go. We'll catch up. You know, it's just, but literally, I mean, that just one verse of the Spice Girls took 20 minutes of, of delay, you know, I mean, right. no one tells you that. No one tells you that. It, it was really something to realize just how, how precious that is, you know, air and breathing and, and focusing. So my question is like, you mentioned there's 12 of you, plus there's, you know, 48 people in the camp or whatever it may be, or, or 48 people helping you up the mountain. Yeah. What happens if someone starts to lag and slows down? Like, is this one long chain of people or do you, tr- do you stop and wait for the next or how does that kind of go? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we go from one camp to another each day. And so if someone's fallen way behind, there's, there's a guide or two that st- hangs back with them. No one's right. like, good gotcha. luck. You know, the monkeys are going to rip your face <laughs> yeah, off. Good luck. Later. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, but we, we try to mostly stick together and, that's the cool thing too is until we get to summit day it's just you just got to get to the next camp that's all get there before the sun goes down everything's fine but it gets it gets a little hairy once we're going for the summit because you've got to get up there and then we got to get down and then we got to get down to the next t- camp 
uh, it's just a grueling, like, I don't know, 30, 40 hours with very little sleep and a whole lot of movement at really high altitude. And that was that, that wrung out feeling that we had, but amazing, but amazing. So when you get to the summit, how long do you stay there for? Our friends at Geico think uh, you just touch the top and start going down again? <laughs> uh, eight, nine minutes. Uh, I had pictures to take and everybody gets their pictures and it's really exciting. But that's it, just, that quick. That's it. And, and, but that's, there's no air up there, man. You got to oh, get down. Gotcha. You know? And so, yeah, it's like, take your picture and then what else are you going to do? You're not going to plant a garden, right? It's not going to just get out of here. And so uh, the other thing too was really cool. At the top, you could see the glaciers. There's been glaciers up there for thousands of years. Jeez. And it's predicted that they're going to be gone within about 10 years because of climate change. And so, so that was kind of just incredible to see these majestic things that have been there for thousands of years and steadily shrinking and to think, wow, I could be one of the last to actually see it in person. So that was, and then, you know, get down. And when you come down, funny thing, right? So coming down a mountain is always harder. <laughs> There's a life lesson there somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, right? It's always harder coming down. But at the same time, you come down 500 feet and there's more air, 500 more feet. And that straw you're breathing through gets just a little thicker. And you're like, okay, mm. a little more air, a little more. And then further down and further down until you're just like, hey, this isn't bad at all. And you don't have to go quite as slow coming down. But it's all impact on your ankles and on your knees. And that's, you know, going up is just muscle. You get tired, just rest for a minute and keep going. But down is that impact. And so it's it's just sort of like pacing yourself and then, also realizing like, shoot, man, you're on the decline now. That thing you've been thinking about for so long, you just did it. And now what? What's what's your next thing? Like, I, it was weird. I had a hangover for like three months. Just like, mm -hmm. what's what's my next thing? What am I going to do now? Like, I thought about this for so long. I trained right. hard for it. Right, right, right. And, and, and that's, I mean, you know, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay motivated to like get the next thing? It's it's not the same, but it kind of is like when I um, did Dance with the Stars, for example, you spend so much time training and practicing and doing it. And it's every day. Boom, 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 boom. After seven weeks, it was done. I felt super lost. Like, what what am I going to do? Like, where's my dancing? You know, so I can see you kind of having the same thing mentally and physically when you're taking all this time to get up there. You know, once you get up there, and you start going down. You're probably like, oh, now what? You know, yeah. it's done. I, and that's and that's the thing that uh, but you do a million different things like you found something after dancing with the stars yeah, that's yeah, yeah. The, you have to you have to because yeah. like because and not only that i mean let's be honest you want to chase that high again exactly you right i get and that's the thing you want to be like okay well it doesn't have to be a mountain per se but what's the next thing i want to do that mm. that's going to get me this excited this focused again and like you know to set this big goal and, and get there and and that's i think that's the difference between like like champions you know and right uh, yeah like how does tom brady win six and then like how do you motivate for eight like you have <laughs> you have more than anyone is ever going to get you know yeah and, and, but he does he does and and i think there there's you know we, we look to our athletes for for inspiration with this stuff because you're just like yeah how do i stay motivated how do i come back after something really cool like that and find my next really cool thing and that's the job for all of us okay this one's for geico going back to when you were in those higher elevations first of all you must have had to take in so many calories to have that energy what do you eat when you're up there and how do you eat when you're up there so uh, those, those 48 people, they don't go all the way to the top with you. They just get to the last camp. And then you have a few guys that get you up there. They're carrying food. We ate a lot of rice, lots and lots of rice, a lot of plantains, uh, which are like those green bananas. They, yeah. when they, 
when you eat them that green, they taste like a potato. So lots of starch, lots of rice. They had pasta. You can never eat enough. So whatever was put in front of me, I ate. Um, we had sandwiches and chicken and stuff like that. Is it hot? Is it cold? Yeah, they they brought up propane tanks to, to oh, heat gotcha. things up. So yeah, so we were able to eat hot meals and even soups. They were incredible. You know, my expectations were so low with food. I was picturing just granola bars, you know, for yeah, like every, yeah, yeah. every meal. But um, no, they, they took care of us. And um, what's great when you're doing something like that is you can eat all you want. You're not watching any calories at that point. Right. You, just, you just take it all in and burn it the next day. So yeah, we, we ate okay. And um, the bathroom, that was the tricky part, right? The, oh, the, and you yeah. talk about that. Yeah, so the, the guides were, they called it picking a flower, which I think is just charming, you know? <laughs> so you're, you're, you're walking along and when you're at the lower elevations, picking a flower is easy. There's tons of trees. You can go by in any one of them and have all the privacy you'd like. Once you get above the tree line, there's nothing but rocks. Some of them are big enough to hide behind it. And you realize we all just kind of give each other as much dignity as we can give, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, man, it's easier for boys, obviously. But when you got to go number two, man, you're, you're just digging a hole, sitting behind a rock and just thinking my life has come to this. <laughs> you know? and, uh, that's that's where you're at. That's what you got to do. And that's literally just digging a hole in the ground. And that, if you're in the middle on the way uh, at our camp, they had those little squatty potties in a little tent. Again, everybody knows what you're doing, but at least you've got that. You, at you this feel point, like who cares, right? Yeah. No, yeah, it's it's gone at this point. You're just like, look, you know, the, the pride has got to be left somewhere down below. Yeah, we'll, we'll get that back when we get off the mountain. Leave the pride with the cell phone. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, which is cool too, just to be like broken down, like you know, bodily functions, food, sleep, like these these are the biggest things to think about during the day. Those are your top concerns. I would imagine too, not getting too biological about it, but I would I would imagine that you're using up so much of the food you're eating. There's probably not a lot of waste even there. <laughs> or I is there? Any, I didn't take <laughs> any pictures for you, Chris. But uh, <laughs> give us some documentation. <laughs> there, was, there has to there, be an app for that. There was plenty. There was plenty. Uh, yeah, man. I don't know. It was just, but yeah, it was. It was a really cool like fitness thing, and also, um, you know, a way to like honor honor someone you care about and and yourself and yourself to realize like, wow, you know, like no, still capable. Yeah. No, I guess too. Like I noticed, like whenever I go. You know, I love going snowboarding every year for basically a lesser version of what you're saying. Like when you get on top of the mountain, the peacefulness, the, the lack of noise, the lack of industrial noises, just that kind of being one with nature, not to get too you know philosophical about it. Did you feel that as well? Like I'm one with Mother Nature? The third night, second night, we were on the mountain. We were at this place called Shira Plateau, and it was just flat and open. And when the sun went down, there was not a single cloud in the sky. And I have never in my life seen a starry sky like that before. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah. like the Milky Way is just right there. And every single star, the Southern Cross, the like all these constellations I don't get to see because I'm up in the Northern Hemisphere. Like it was, there was no light pollution, no pollution pollution. If you just tilt your head up, like, I was in space. I mean, I was <laughs> yeah. in space and it was incredible to just feel this like, it's it's so great to be on a mountain that big and feel that small and just be okay with it. And it is philosophical. I mean, you you do start to like get one with this this place that you are because you have to. You're in this like symbiotic relationship with it for the next week. You got to get along. Mm -hmm. And just to notice details about this place was just 
it was, you know, I have a daughter. I, I know you do too, right? I mean, um, yeah. So two of them, yeah, yeah, two, right? So, um, at one point near the top, there was like all this these broken rocks. It looked like if you took like ten thousand dinner plates and shattered them. And I, t- I took a picture of it for my daughter specifically because I was like, you know, looking at this mountain from a distance or up close, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's been here for one million years. Jeez, right. And and it's pocked up and it's been weathered and it's been broken and battered and bruised and been through volcanoes. And it is still one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And it's beautiful because it's taken all this abuse and battering and it still stands tall after all this time. And it was, it was like this lesson for my daughter, you know, like, look at this place. Like, this is what beauty looks like that you're, you're going to get scars and you're going to get pocked up because that's what happens over time, but you stand tall. And, and it just, it felt like a lesson for her too. Another interesting part is when you were walking up the mountain and you see kind of a, almost a, a memorial gravestone kind of on the side of it. It must've been kind of a little bit of a shocker for you to kind of see that just sitting right there sobering sobering yeah. to say the least because you're like hey this is great this is fun and, and then we've, we passed at least two where you you look and you say someone died right here someone came back with this plaque to leave right here. yeah like this was like a return trip for someone and that was um sobering sobering and 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 you know the dates on it one of them i think was like 2013 i mean well, yeah, it wasn't that long ago it's not what like year, what year did you climb 2017 So, yeah, it only been a few years earlier. And to look down at that and, you know, one of the other interesting things about the Chaga people and the Chaga, like uh, more on the Tanzania side. So the Chaga people have this belief that our world and the spirit world are completely interconnected, that one can affect the other just as easily as like living people can affect each other. You can you can make someone angry. They can make you angry or happy or, or anything. And so the idea that someone dies and is still with us on the mountain is just accepted. It's not that unusual. And that person maybe could help us and and maybe could not help us depending on on their mood. And I thought that's really an interesting way to look at not just the physical world, but like the, the whole notion of this afterlife as well, that, that you still matter even when your, your material body has passed on and you still have influence. Sort of comforting. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What did those guys die from, by the way? Like, how do you die on, on the mountain? So the, the second one we saw was altitude. And um, it can cause an aneurysm. It can cause all kinds of things. Once you get up high enough, you you can just asphyxiate. You can not get enough air. You can push yourself too hard and, and it can cause cardiac arrest, any number of things. Mm-hmm. The first plaque we saw, he was struck by lightning. That's how oh he gosh. died. Wow. I know. Yeah. And that's that's when it just, you have this like wake up call. Like, yeah, I've got all this metal on me and oh man, like, and, and these clouds, you know, you're walking along and like this puffy cloud will just go like right through you. And you're like, that's kind of neat. This is, I'm right at their altitude. And some of them are sort of gray in color. And you go, well, shoot, if there's enough of them and they're electric, that's a big problem. You yeah. know, I mean, fast, it, it, the weather changes so fast. I mean, these clouds roll in, they move out. It can happen. And in one minute it's sunny and you're walking and the next minute you're in a cloud. Uh, and that happened over and over. So that was sort of a, a wake up call too. But also the volcano is only dormant 
<laughs> so like you know if this thing goes off that's checkout time don't even run there's no, there's no point you know like you're right, not, right 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 why you might as well watch it coming uh, <laughs> so uh so that occurred to me too that this is not an extinct volcano it's just a dormant one mm. all right our friends at geico reminded me about this so you're a paranormal expert so to speak was there any type of paranormal activity associated with kilimanjaro yeah, so as I mentioned, the, the the local people have a word for the top of the mountain that's the house of God, where God dwells. And, and and if you think about this too, if you live down near the base of the mountain where people have lived for countless thousands of years, it's white at the top of that mountain because of snow. It snows regularly. And you've never seen snow, not at not at Tanzania, not at not at the base. So it's just so foreign to you, so completely out of reach. And, and, and I can understand why they would say, you know, and don't go up there. There's nothing for you. There's no food. There's no water. There's nothing, no resources. There's no reason to go up there. And yet mountains just call to some people. They just do. There, there's also something interesting about, uh, especially on the Kenyan side, about elephants. How uh, when elephants are getting ready to die, some of them will go thousands of feet up that mountain and, and pass away on the mountain. Wow. And, and that's, I mean, why, right? When you're, when you sense you're near the end of your life, this elephant will, will do that. And people have seen like elephant bones and things like that at, at eight or nine or 10,000 feet. And that's, I mean, I know what it took to get me up that high, and, you know, elephants, a lot more mass and, and all that yeah. other stuff. So, um, there's something mystical and magical about this place that it even calls to, to, to the elephants to go up there to, to pass away. When I was on the rim of the volcano, I did have that moment where I just felt, I felt my brother-in-law who, by the way, like in life, this would be the very last trip he would ever, like he would never be the guy that climbs Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm -hmm. That's just not how, who he was. But I just, I felt him there. I felt him like right there with me. And it was kind of cool to feel that, that connection. And I thought about like what the Chaga people believe that, you know, you call, what and who you need when you need it. And I guess in that moment, I needed to know he was still there. Mm. So when you do finally get back down to the bottom, do you get like a, you know, a, a plaque, a medal? <laughs> uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro. All I got with this, <laughs> was this t-shirt. Yeah. Right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> they gave us a, they gave us a, a certificate that said the day we did it in the time, um, I still have that somewhere. I took a picture of it. We have a we had a lot of beer. <laughs> the Kilimanjaro beers are these twenty ounce bombers, and they're one U.S. dollar each. <laughs> I don't know how many twenty dollars buys, but it's a lot. <laughs> I think it's about twelve. Right, right, right. <laughs> and at that point, you just float off to bed. Uh, so yeah, there was a, there was a lot of like drinking and eating that day after and uh and the shower oh the shower oh yeah yeah that was the first shower in uh you know eight days plus and you know that was that i, I thought it would feel so glorious it was a uh, it felt like work like it was, <laughs> there was there was some scrubbing to do you know but um, yeah but it was uh it was just kind of crazy to just be stepping back into the world after that and and get connected call home everybody's right. okay yeah got away with it everybody's okay everybody's safe great i'll be on my way home tomorrow you know see you soon you know, to just, that was, of course, felt good to, to feel that, that connection with home again and start sent, getting some pictures over through the hotel Wi-Fi and, and be like, look at, look at what I saw. I can't wait to mm. tell you about it. And that's what made it real, right? Was to ultimately get home and realize, and it took me all the way to getting home that the goal was never the top. I thought it was, I thought the summit was the goal, but the goal is to get home, right? Like that's where the adventures start and that's where they end. 
is is when you you bring them back to to where you live and that was cool that was really cool to like to to have that moment and realize that this this is the goal this is where i this is where i was heading the whole time do you kind of lament the state of the world being so connected uh with phones and everything when you saw the other side completely um you know a, a total 180 from where we're at here in civilization and they both have their charm let's be honest right like right. I, I don't want to be too far from uh from that <laughs> technology because i like connecting with people and i like sharing my stories and i like being able to do this stuff so but it was it was a great reminder that there is a whole other way of life that humans have have gone through all up until like the last what 50 60 years ago right like yeah. it wasn't that long ago and and human timeline that it was, you know, your whole world was like the town you lived in. That was just, you know, hundred years ago, 150 years ago. Yeah. You, you didn't venture too far beyond your town's borders. Uh, but that's, that's, that's not the world we live in anymore. It's a reminder to go visit that world, that simple world and to reset myself again. Uh, I, you know, I, I'll still do day hikes and stuff like that and, and do some, some mountains around here. And it's, it, it's resetting to a point, but it's not the same as like just really unplugging not looking at a TV or a computer screen or a phone screen for for that long, um, but it is a reminder to do it again, get reset again, and then you come back and you're you're ready for another round. Would you do something like this again? I would do Kilimanjaro again tomorrow. If you're like, really? I got a ticket, let's go. I would go again. Um, it, and I'm the kind of guy that I love to travel. I love seeing foreign places, but I typically don't want to go to the same place twice for no other reason than like I went to Machu Picchu two summers ago. It was great. But like, if you said, Hey, I got a ticket. You want to go? I've been there. It's great. Peru, beautiful, loved it. But you know, I've been there and done that. What's the next thing? But Kilimanjaro, I would go again. And you know, there's the seven summits. The, the tallest of course is Everest, but there's another one I'm sort of thinking about. There's Elbrus over in Europe and that's the tallest. That's one of the seven as well. And, and so I'm like, and that's also not a technical climb and, and you start itching again. You're like, I could knock out two of the seven. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's sort of bragging rights, right? Right. Something, something. One last question from the folks at Geico. What's the thing that stands out the most for you, Jeff? Like, what's the big moment from this journey for you? There's two, right? Seeing the sunrise and finding like this sense of hope again, that that, that just a few hours earlier, I was just in, in literally the darkest, coldest place I'd ever been and and feeling like I was, I, I was going to have to quit to invigorated and knowing like I matter, I'm here, I made it, and now we're going we're, we're gonna to do it. But also the the takeaway of of getting this this whole experience, you know, that this this thing is now a part of me forever, and I get to keep it. It's not a material thing; it's an experiential thing that gets to remain part of me. And so, knowing I can do it, knowing that I have the ability to do that, that I can get myself in the kind of shape to do it, fitness wise, that's just so comforting. And I and I know for a fact. The type of life I have, I mean, I'm a researcher, I'm a writer, I'm at my computer a lot. I get to travel, which is cool, but like, I just don't have the physical challenges that I wish I did. And I got to make those things. I got to make time for those things because they're not built into my life. I mean, last question for you. And it's interesting because you, you've, you've, you've been known for, for being kind of the paranormal guy and, and, and the New England guy and all that sort of stuff. Now that you have experienced this other life-changing event... Do you now want to spread your career, so to speak, or do you want to go back to Ghost Guy, or is there other adventures that you want to have? 
I still love ghosts. I will still be the paranormal guy, I promise. I'm still doing my weekly podcast, New England Legends, still doing like all the stuff that uh, I love doing. That doesn't change. In fact, I viewed this as almost an extension of that, right? When you, when sure. you spend, spend enough time in like haunted castles and graveyards and battlefields, you you, find, you realize this is sort of a spiritual journey too. Exactly, sure. Yeah, and like I have my own questions just like everybody else. So, you know, when I'm in that old abandoned hospital looking for ghosts, uh, what I'm really asking is like, is there something beyond? Is there this this thing? And so this was a way for me to also express my spirituality, to have a s- deeply spiritual experience in a profound place. So yeah, no, I mean, I want to, I want to be both guys, and I think I am. And and um, you know, I, I, my book, right? It's got out of body experiences in it. It's got this spiritual sure, right. encounter at the top. Like that's the lens that I look through. I can't help it. That's who I am, and that's not going to change. But at the same time, I, I do have other things I want to see, experience, and do. And uh, and I'm just grateful that I, I have the chance to do that and share those stories as well. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, a legit spiritual experience. Like you said, to do something like that and to be one with nature, I mean, that is spiritual for sure. You know, you don't have to see the white sheet flying through the sky to, to do that, you know? Yeah. Is, is there another adventure that you, that you want to take? So I have this idea. <laughs> I want to get a group of friends together and uh, I want to go into the Sierra Nevadas and I want to rent a gold mine claim and I want to spend a week digging for goals. Like, like oh. it's 1849. Like, and and um, I, I spoke to a guy while well, I was working for Ghost Adventures. I still do. I, I spoke to a guy who had a ghost experience at an old abandoned mine. And he's like, oh, my buddies and I, we spend two weeks a year and we rent claims and we, we found like 20 grand one year. And I love the idea of those in 1849, right? Like you're 22 years old. You go out West with a shovel and a dream. And some people like got filthy rich in the span of weeks. They found a bunch <laughs> of gold. And, and so I love this idea of, of like getting some friends together around the same age and we just go live like it's 1849. I'll have to find a guide because I, you know, I wouldn't know gold from granite, but whatever. We'll find someone who does and bring them along and, um, you know, eat the beans out of the can and bring the whiskey and like dig for gold all day long. And if we don't find <laughs> anything, I feel like it would still be some lesson in there somewhere. So that's that's kind of in the works. I have done that before. I think it was for Discovery or History Channel. It yeah. was a one. It was a one-off where we went. We went to um, Utah, mm-hmm. like the outskirt deserts of Utah, and searched for the missing gold of Billy the Kid. And you talk about in your book about going and seeing some of these places where it looks like C three PO and R two D two with the Jawas. This is the exact same thing. So, and there's stuff out there all over the place. Like you, we found some bullets, and we found a cave that had some Billy the Kid scratched in it underneath where he was hiding. Like there's a bunch of stuff out there that you can find. That's really cool. And isn't that great though? Like we we want to connect, right? We we love that that sense of adventure that we're searching for something. And when it's something physical, like the top of a mountain and a summit sign, or gold, or you know, an artifact related to someone who you know left a mark on the world like that that quest is really what matters right it's the journey That's right yeah, yeah. It, it, i mean we know that but damn it it feels good to to cross the finish line too and find that thing <laughs> and come back and be like look at look at i can hold it i did it um but yeah that's I, I i get it i get that that need to seek but also to find well jeff you found a great adventure and the call of kilimanjaro it's a really cool uh story about this and it's great to to, to work with you quote unquote again we'll have to do uh, another show again soon 
Anytime, man. Good to see you again, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Remember, and I'm talking to you too, Geico, pick up a copy of Jeff's book, The Call of Kilimanjaro, Finding Hope Above the Clouds at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books, and go do it now. 